to think how we're going to recover, what you've lost is what you've lost. But I think you, we all need to change. And there has to be a pretty much big paradigm shift in the way people think about conservation going forward. Um, and not just focus on, on what we had in the past, where we just put a fence up and keep animals in and try and protect it. Welcome to this Focus Radio podcast. Today, as the globe commemorates World Rhino Day, Investic Rhino Lifeline thought it timely to get to grips with how the COVID-19 lockdown has impacted conservation generally, and more specifically, rhino conservation. I'm Caroline Edie van Veek, brand editor at Investec, and I'm joined now by conservation powerhouse couple, Petronelle Nuvot and Chris de Bruno Austin, whose NGO, Care for Wild, has partnered with Investec Rhino Lifeline for over four years now. Since inception, Petronelle and Chris and their team have rescued and cared for some 80 rhinos. <laughs> and we worked out that between the two of them, they have some 55 years of conservation experience. That's pretty impressive. In their line of work, crisis management becomes second nature. But one crisis they could never have planned or prepared for is, of course, COVID-19. Joining me telephonically from an undisclosed location in Mpumalanga is Petronelle and Chris. Thanks so much for joining me today. For the benefit of our audience, please tell me a bit of what Care for Wild does as an NGO. Care for Wild Rhino Sanctuary is there to rescue, rehabilitate, and then release rhinos back into the wild. So what we try to do is to establish viable black and white rhino populations again. Chris, how did COVID-19 impact your NGO and the donor income on which you are quite reliant? Thanks for the opportunity to be able to share with the listeners. An interesting question because I think you've got to look at it from another perspective in that COVID had its good points and its bad points. So what COVID did uh, for Care for Wild was it showed that we are um, an NGO of substance and that what we're doing out in the donor world is accepted and that our brand um, has quite a lot of, what's the word, credibility. So what we found was that we had some amazing responses from, from our donor community, and we actually had a really good inflow over the period. And I think the reason is, is that Careful Wild's whole sort of vision and mission to ensure that we've got sustainable white and black rhino populations and that we're all inclusive with the communities that surround us is seen in a very positive light with our donors. At the same time, we know of a lot of other organizations that have really struggled where their donors shut down, their, you know, the income streams were cut dramatically and some of the contracts were terminated so that we weren't, you know, just relying on one large donor. We've, we've, we've diversified. Expand on what diversification of income means, please. I'm aware that the Careful Wild strategy is focused not only on preserving animals, but also people. So tell me a bit more about how you and the community have worked together through these challenging times of lockdown? Look at our communities, not as, as sitting outside the fence and we on the inside and the rhinos are inside and we've got to protect the rhinos from the community. We have a different approach. Our approach is that we see the communities as really good partners. Well, the two things that they have in abundance is they have 
human capital, young youth that are hungry for work, and uh, then they've got land. So we partnered through the Tribal Authority, uh, through a trust that owns a specific farm called Crystal Stream, and we put together a commercial venture, a company, a PTY Limited company, which we operate this commercial farming venture through, and we we share the profits 50-50. So from the community side, they give the land, they give the youth to do the work, which, which the farm will pay for. We train that youth, and at the moment, our partnership with Investec is amazing because now we've expanded it from just conservation work where in the past we trained people as conservation workers and game scouts. We're now training agriculture, and we want to, we're going to get that accredited as well. Our aim is to supply vegetables to the local market. When I say the market, we're looking at getting into the spas and the pick and pays and supplying the community through developing small enterprises where we give them a bit of credit on, on products and then they sell it, and that's worked well now. From an employment side, I think something which is also sometimes overlooked is the number of people that we employ. We've got quite a lot of older people, which we are permanent staff, but the investing groups come in, they get trained, they go on a year stipend, and then we pick out the best, and they will then get permanent jobs on the farm. But, you know, if you employ a single youth and he goes home to a family where there's no income and he takes his, his wage, he basically makes sure that that whole family survives and, and that they actually flourish. And we've got some examples where we've got a small village where everybody was unemployed and we employed four of them or five of them. When you go there six months later, you find that they're growing vegetables and that their whole life's improved. So it's actually quite it's rewarding and warming to us to see what the effects are on this. But in the long term, our aim is to have a very successful vegetable and fruit and pigs. But the aim is that we the 50% profit that comes to Care for Wild is used to fund the reserve and our whole sanctuary. And the other 50% goes back to the communities. So what, if you can look at it in another way, and what it means is that the communities are actually going to fund Care for Wild Sanctuary because through their property and their labor and our donors and our expertise, we're able to fund these reserves and at the same time build communities around us. So just to add there, you know, people with purpose are happy people and it's an inspiration to be around them. They have so much energy. And uh, so it's definitely for us saving rhinos to save people, to save tomorrow and the future. So starting with rhinos uh, opened my eyes on how we can save people and giving them hope for the long term and for the journey. It sounds like the most wonderful self-perpetuating cycle where everyone benefits. I think it's a model that NGOs are going to have to look at more seriously post-COVID-19. Also, Petronelle, if I could ask you from a more practical perspective, how did Care for Wild incorporate all the new safety measures necessary during a pandemic? How did all the PPE, etc., impact your daily running of the sanctuary? It was actually quite interesting. You know, at first you be very scared and you're unsure of what will happen. And, you know, uh, for me it was important to understand that, remember, we have gods, we have 
uh, rhino keepers, we have uh, cleaners, we have a lot of other situations. So what's happening is uh, suddenly we had to ask these people to all almost not go home in the uh, sign that they off, you know. So we work in shifts. So the guards and so on have these shifts. So we asked them to stay, and they all bought into that. But with that, there was extra cost involved. So they also invested, really helped, and, and helped us with food and helped us with masks. So that was, that was great. And then to train everyone in uh, wearing the mask, having social distancing, <laughs> you know, even when feeding the rhinos or collecting uh, um, branches for the black rhino or putting out bales and washing hands all the time. So all these things uh, for our leadership was challenging, but it was easy because the whole group bought into it and then uh, good uh, donors were really helping us in this process. So I wanted to ask you about what I'm calling volunteer tourism. How has that impacted? I know you rely quite heavily on volunteers coming and giving of their time and money to be there. During the hard lockdown, you must have had almost zero volunteers come through your doors. Financially, it, uh, it came to a complete halt. There was no one coming into the center and no volunteers allowed. I uh, have to say, that was a little bit of a shock in the beginning, you know, and we also never knew how long this will will take. In the beginning, I can tell you this, this, there's no income, even now. I mean, it's only two people, and it's basically covering a cost. So saying that, we're trying very hard to keep all our people, you know, and not laying down some of the people. Uh, so we, we're fighting this pandemic financially as well from that point of view. Uh, Chris, obviously the revenue that normally comes in from the tourism industry doesn't impact Care for Wild as directly as it would some of the private reserves and some of our large national reserves like the Kruger. But could you give us a sense of how conservation has been impacted? Do you have any figures that you could give us to quantify the impact of COVID-19 on conservation and tourism in Southern Africa? I'm not sure on the numbers we collected across South Africa. I know what it's what it meant to the operations at Care for Wild, and it's been it's been massive. I know that, for example, Kruger, and we're, we're losing we're national parks. We're losing four million a day. Um, because and they, they Kruger relies on most of the income comes from tourism. Very little is is in in the ground form from the state. So I think it's had a massive impact. And and, I've, and I have a lot of friends that are involved in lodges and so forth. Um, and they've they've pretty much all come to a standstill, put things on hold. And I know for a fact I've got a friend uh, who's a who's a senior guide in Tanzania, Kiripoi. And he said to me, they lock, they're not going to operate again until May next year. And that's what their employers have said. So this is not hundreds of thousands or millions. This is billions of rands that all it's a loss. And it's going to take a long time for recovery in terms of the tourist side. And as I said, from Careful Wild's perspective, you know, it's affected us. But we've also, as I said, built a, a, a diverse stream of donors and they've been loyal to us over this period, believing in what our cause is. 
From an income and revenue stream perspective, Chris, what do you think needs to happen in the conservation arena to try and make up for these losses? Is there a way that they can rejig their models? Conservation world made up of fully private organizations, state entities like sand parks, national parks, provincial parks, and then NGOs. So to answer your question in terms of how do we get through this, very difficult to recover what you've lost. What's gone is gone. It's water under the bridge. But we need to re-look at the way we do business. And we need to be more diversified. To, we need to diversify our income streams. And I think what, what's going to happen at the end of this process is that the projects that have substance, they're, they're there for the right reasons, are the ones that are going to survive. And they're going to flourish if they change their, their models going forward. To say, well, you know, what Kepler Wild are doing is really looking at changing from 100% donor-funded grant, donate, grants, donations, to trying to get to a minimum of 80% in, income that we generate over time uh, from other income streams, and that we're able to then redirect the additional funding that, that we have in surplus, that we're going to have to actually redirect it into other projects. What you've lost is what you've lost, but I think you, we all need to change, and there has to be a pretty much big paradigm shift in the way people think about conservation going forward. This, this pandemic was a big wake-up. And just the other point that I said, what's a good thing about this pandemic, and Petronel will be with me there, I believe, is that at this time, although we've lost money, we would normally be so busy that, um, and in, not only here, it's elsewhere. If you look at some of the other parks where the poaching dropped off because of the lockdown, uh, game rangers and game scouts were able to go back and do what they were really, what, what their jobs actually, their job description is, but they could go back to conservation and do real conservation. And so that's the one thing. It's given a bit of a respite to the, the people working that man, managed to keep their jobs, but it also gave the, the environment respite. So, you know, you saw lots of very interesting videos coming out where animals were seen where they've never been seen before. And that's just purely because the pressure's been taken off them. So it's done a lot of good in a funny way, in, in a way other than it's destroyed us financially. So, yeah, pandemics aren't always all bad. So people need to understand that there's two sides to this coin when it gets to poaching. You get high-level criminals, and then you get these people that's now very poor and very hungry. We a little bit concerned about from our side at the moment is more hungry people. You know, it's more, uh, we concerned more about people that will snare uh, smaller antelopes, uh, rabbits, you know, that type of thing to just feed their families because they lost their jobs. You know, and they're just hungry. Now on Friday, uh, we are going to go out to these families that we already know, that uh, old people, people with children, and we are going to give them a little bit of a helping hand there, and that's to do with giving them food, because we don't want them to just come and be so hungry that they have to snare, uh, because it's bush meat, and there's people who snare to sell bush meat. So it's quite an intense situation then from uh, a lower level, if I can call it that, and not necessarily the rhino poacher. Thanks for giving that context, Petronal. The food crisis brought on by this pandemic is real and it's being felt across the country. 
So it's really terrific to hear that Care for Wild is doing more than just feeding their immediate staff, but also thinking about the communities in which they live. Now, I'd like to get back to you, Chris. You mentioned that there were a couple of good things that came out of this pandemic. One of them being that the guys that were doing mostly anti-poaching type exercises and work are now getting back to what you call real conservation. What, in fact, does real conservation entail? So to give you an example, um, in the normal world, when, in, let's say, seven years ago, eight years ago, before the rhino uh, war started, a game scout would do a lot, much more than just anti-poaching. Let's say 25% of his time would be done, would be doing anti-poaching in a reserve, especially the sections of a reserve that are away from the boundaries. And the anti-poaching would have been basically patrolling the fence and looking for snares and removing snares and so forth. It wasn't as intense as it is now. And that allowed them to look for animals, count, count numbers of animals, look for alien invasive plants, repair roads, repair the fences, uh, do fire management. There's a whole host of, of things that they're responsible for. The true game scout. And at the moment, they do 99% of their work. is carrying a weapon, chasing poachers, trying to stop them poaching rhinos. And even if you look at the courses that are being offered at the moment over the last seven years, the courses are skewed towards anti-poaching and not game scouts. The government recently released the poaching stats for 2020, and they say that the figures were actually significantly down, that killings reportedly fell by 53% in the first six months of this year. I'm sure that's in large part to what we were discussing about borders being closed, but I believe that the picture has now changed. What have you two experienced in the last few weeks at Care for Wild? From a poaching perspective, zero, and we want to keep it that way. We've been poaching free and incursion free since 2014. From, from a Care for Wild perspective, we've maintained our vigilance and our level of standards. We haven't arrested. But on large uh, reserves where tourists are not going in and where a lot of the poaching was, a lot of it was coming from people being driven in, that took a big um, hit on the poacher, so it slowed right down to, to almost zero. Thanks, Chris. I'd also like to get Petronelle's take in terms of the injured and orphaned rhinos that have come through your doors most recently. Yes, uh, Caroline, definitely. You know, we were almost getting to a situation where we could rewrite SOPs, you know, really get to the uh, ecology um, and do a lot of paperwork. <laughs> and the next moment, when some of these areas allowed uh, day visitors again, it was like a spike of note. It was almost scary to see. And uh, the first baby came in just after, you know, we went to, to level three, I think it was, and, and uh, he was only four days old. And then after that, it was just basically babies coming in. So obviously, the spike is going to be more pronounced right now because you're coming off a very low base. But is this increase also a year-on-year -year spike? Do you think poachers who haven't been able to gain access to the parks are now going full tilt to make up for lost time? 
Oh, yeah, most definitely, because remember, the demand isn't gone. There's still a demand for rhino horn. And, uh, uh, you know, so I think there's still orders lying there, and these guys that, that could not uh, uh, get to the rhino to get the rhino horn now want to go full blast for that type of thing. So everyone works much harder. Crime intelligence uh, must work much harder to try and just, just see what they can do. So I think that brings us quite nicely to how I'd like to wrap up this conversation. How has COVID-19 changed your outlook and practices? I mean, the think, but also what you do as conservationists and as business owners. I would say from my side, I saw how rhinos can save people. So sometimes you have to turn it all around and um, have compassion to both. And I've seen uh, job creation. I've seen uh, happy people. And I've seen people helping each other. And that is absolutely amazing. From my perspective, it's what drives entrepreneurs is that when your back's against the wall, you start to think and you start to think out the box. So not that, that our diversification and long-term strategy to be sustainable uh, started with lockdown. It started way before. It's part of what our vision has been. So for me, the, the pandemic, you know, it's sad people have passed away and in a way, it's, it's, it's helped set us in a path where we think differently and we're more driven to make sure that we're not reliant on one 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 income stream and that we know we need to make sure that what we do is that diverse and that it works because then we'll be here forever. So post-COVID, we, we're going to fly, I believe. We need to we need to think differently as a, as a as a conservation community. We need to throw away what we were doing and rethink it all and redo it and go in a different in a different route. Because that's the only way we're going to survive. We cannot survive where you've got a growing population of unemployed and hungry people and you've, you spend more money on helicopters and gunships and whatever to protect your, your, your precious rhinos and elephants. And I mean that. They are precious. They're everything. But that's the wrong way. Uh, you, still, you still need some of that, but we should be going the other way as well. We should be making sure that it's inclusive. And I know it's... It's difficult. You know, some people hear me saying this and say, yeah, you, you're being an idealist and all that. But we working on the coalface. We understand how you can change this. But you've got to think out the box. You've got to do things differently. It's just the way we have to be. Otherwise, conservation in the long term is, you know, it's endangered. Thank you, Chris and Petronelle, for taking the time out on what must be a very busy day for you, it being World Rhino Day, to talk to us about the fascinating subject of conservation in a time of crisis. Care for Wild is a partner of Investec Rhino Lifeline. It started eight years ago this month and continues to make an impact by raising awareness and funds through conservation education and rhino rescue. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take the time to rate us and subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you download your podcasts.